glad to see that you're all still here. And I, I want to um, just comment on how touched I am and the other teachers um, on the earnestness uh, that you've carried on this practice. This is not an easy practice. And we know that some of you really didn't have a sense of what you were signing up for, uh, um, this concentration retreat. And that it's, a, it's a, a little more challenging than the normal Vipassana retreat. So I just wanted to name that and really bow to you people to, uh, for the way that you're hanging in there and, and putting forth such a, a good, wholesome effort. So last night, Marcia uh, really gave a kind of a beautiful overview of the, the samadhi concentration or shamatha practice. And tonight, I'm going to pay a little more particular attention to the challenging energies that come up when we practice. And uh, you, may, you may relate to this. Maybe not. I decided I decide to water my garden. As I turn on the hose, I look over at my car and decide it needs washing. As I start toward the garage, I notice mail on the table that I collected from the mailbox earlier. I decide to go through the mail before I wash the car. I lay my car keys on the table, but the junk mail in the recycle bin, I, I put the junk mail in the recycle bin under the table and notice that it is full. So I decide to put the bills back on the table and take out the recycling first. But then I think, since I'm going to be near the mailbox when I take out the recycling anyway, I might as well pay the bills first. I take my checkbook off the table and see there's only one check left. My, my extra checks are in my desk in the study. So I go inside the house to my desk where I, where I find the can of Coke I'd been drinking. I'm going to look for my checks, but first I need to push the Coke aside so that I don't accidentally knock it over. The Coke is getting warm, and I decide to put it in the fridge so, to keep it cold. As I head toward the kitchen with the Coke, a vase of flowers on the worktop catches my eye. They need water. I put the Coke on the worktop and discover my reading glasses that I've been searching for all morning. Is this kind of any of this familiar? I decide I better put them back on my desk. But first I'm going to water the flowers. I set the glasses back down on the worktop, fill a container with water, and suddenly spot the TV remote. Someone left it on the kitchen table. I realize that tonight when we watch TV, I'll be looking for the remote control, but I won't remember that it's on the kitchen table. So I decide to put it back in the front room where it belongs. But first I'll water the flowers. I pour some water in the flowers, but most of it spills on the floor. So I set the remote control back on the table, get some towels, and wipe up the spill. Then I head down the hall trying to remember what I was planning to do. And at the end of the day, the car isn't washed, the bills aren't paid, there's a warm can of Coke sitting on the worktop, the flowers don't have enough water, there is still only one check in my checkbook, I can't find the remote control, I can't find my glasses, and I don't remember what I did with the car keys. (laughs) Then when I try to figure out why nothing got done today, I'm really baffled because I know I was busy all day and I'm really tired. And I realize this is a serious problem and I'll try to get some help for it. But first, I'll check my email. So this is, this is the mind that we get born with, you know? This is just the way it is. It's jumping all around, trying to get things right, trying to get them in order. So has anybody had a day like that? Or several, or a life like that? So, so as you practice meditation, you've probably noticed these instructions are pretty simple. And they're designed to cultivate this peaceful, contented heart-mind. Yet carrying out these instructions, not so simple. All kinds of challenging energies arise when we're just trying to do a simple thing. Oh, I'll just put my attention right here. What could be 
more simple. In Pali, um, but you're going to have to, as it, this is a big part of the practice, learning to be with these energies. As contemplative artists, it's really an important part that can't be skipped over. So I want to emphasize that as we go along. In, in Pali, the language spoken in northern India about the time of the Buddha, um, these are called, these energies are called nivarana, literally translated as coverings, or sometimes that which hinders clear seeing, and oftentimes just called the hindrances. I personally like to refer to them as challenging energies. And they're generally grouped in five categories. The first category is wanting, lust, the kind of wanting mind. Second category is the non-wanting or aversive, which also includes fear, guilt, shame. Third category is uh, restlessness and worry. Fourth category is uh, sleepiness, sluggishness, classically called sloth and torpor. Would you like the sound of that? (laughs) Gee, I'm feeling sloth and torpor today. (laughs) And then the last category is doubt. And this is how they're described in the Pali Canon. Um, this, This from the Buddha. This mind, O monks, is luminous, but it is corrupted by adventitious defilements. The uninstructed worldling does not understand this as it really is. Therefore, for her, there is no mental development. This mind, O monks, is luminous, but it is free from adventitious defilements. The instructed noble disciple understands this as it really is. Therefore, for her, there is mental development. In that passage, mental development uh, is referred to, and they're referring to the cultivation of samadhi. But the poor, uninstructed worldling, it's another phrase I like, uninstructed worldling, doesn't get it. But you can relax. That's not referring to you, because you're getting instruction. You are the instructed noble disciple. Another part of the passage says, this mind, O monks, is luminous. Meaning that the deep mind, by its very nature, it's not dark, it's not murky, dull, it's not turbulent in any way, it's luminous. Its essential character is a brightness, a light, It's filled with a a shining, open, non-conceptual intelligence and a deep tranquility. But as the Buddha said, this natural perfected mind is visited by adventitious energies. And that there lies the challenge for you, the noble practitioners. Now, it's important to remember uh, that these energies that obscure the beauty of the natural mind, they're not, any, they're not a permanent stain on your mind. They're not inherent in any way. They pass through, like weather systems, causing whatever effects they're going to cause, but they're not an inherent part of of the heart-mind. They're not who you are. They're merely movements of these temporary weather patterns. You don't have to own them. And taking another step back, and I'll elaborate this as we go through, another step back beyond the simple fact that these energies are are truly insubstantial, I want to make the case tonight that that each of these energies, and these hindrance energies, uh, are actually loving visitors. 
it might seem a little off, but you know, that these visiting energies whose deepest interest, the deepest core interest of these energies is one of loving care. They're attempting in their own way to provide you with comfort, avoid pain, protect you in some way, and guarantee your survival forever. And I found that over the years that if, if you can begin to look at these energies as in, in this way, as kind of supporting energies, misguided, albeit. But if we can begin to look at them as supporting energies, it kind of softens our whole relationship to ourself. You know, if we can learn to see the, these energies are not the enemy. They're more like misguided, loving allies. And I was thinking about, uh, you know, these hindrances, thinking back to my some of my practice times and there were times where I thought I had mastered the ability to have all five of these categories up and active at once. <laughs> Maybe some of you have had that, that experience. I'll be sitting there in retreat and I'm kind of wanting this or that. I want some food that I don't have here. or I want to read the sports section which I haven't seen in a week or whatever it's been. You know, on one hand, so there's this wanting. And then the guy next to me is zipping and unzipping his ski jacket, and it's like driving me bonkers. I have this aversion to, you know, to, to what's going on there. So I'm wanting, I've got aversion, and then I, I'm restless. I'm like my skin's crawling. I'm coming out of myself, and at the same time, I'm all foggy. Kind of somehow, you know, synchronized fogginess and restlessness together. And then I'm doubting. Doubting myself, I'm doubting these teachings, I'm doubting the teachers. So I get the whole thing going, you know. Sometimes that happens, so. But it's impermanent like everything else. So if you're in one of those storms, it's going to end, you know. And there's really nothing to worry about in in concerning uh, these energies when they arise, really for three reasons. Your basic mindfulness practice has the natural tendency to, degree, to decrease the power of, of these energies when they come up. And it does that automatically because in the moment that you notice that there's wanting or there's some kind of aversion, fear, etc., when you notice that they're in operation, uh, you, at that moment, have a new relationship with it. You're no longer kind of sucked under the turbulent waters of it, no longer completely identified. There's a little bit of healthy separation when you can recognize actually what's happening. There's a little bit of spaciousness in there. And second, and this, this hails back to the point I wanted to make, that I think it's important that after you recognize What's up? One of these energies. Wanting, anger, fear, sleepiness, doubt, whatever it is. To reflect for just a moment on the deep underlying intent of your organism in putting forth this energy. Because I really have discovered over the years that each of these energies, there is a, 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 you could say, a loving, protective first cause of that energy. For example, you might notice that wanting has arisen. All right? Um, And it could be wanting an object, you know, food or something like that. Or it could be lust, wanting. Let's let's use lust because that's more fun. (laughs) All right, so you're sitting here on retreat and you get hit by Cupid's arrow. Boing! You know, and somebody out there, you know, across the room, you've determined, it's my soulmate, you know? <laughs> and even though you haven't said boo to him, you don't know anything about them, you know? Um, there it is. Your heart, mind, every time you see them, is kind of jumping out at them, grasping, you know? Um, so you're experiencing in that moment an unadulterated wanting. 
you know. And we call that a VR, a Vipassana romance. <laughs> now, now, on the other side of the scale is the VV. You know, that's the Vipassana vendetta. That's the person over there has violated you in some unforgivable way. And, and their sins cry out for vengeance. It might be the way they walk. Could be the sweater that you have to look at in front of you all the time. Or maybe they have that little sniffle. You know, it's just unforgivable. They're actually stopping you from getting enlightened. That's aversion, right? Okay. But, I, but, I, but what I want you to see that even in these kind of agitating, distracting energies that come up, at, at their primal core, they're trying to help you in some way, support you. That lust energy is attempting to bring you comfort, bring you connection. Bring you a connection that brings you safely into the herd. I mean, we are herd animals. We like to connect in pairs or in groups. And, and the, the aversion, when that's up, that's protecting us from things that we don't want. Things that in some way get in the way of our comfort or our enjoyment or, or our enlightenment. You know? And if you can recognize when these challenging energies up, and just take a moment, just a, a tiny moment, and bow to your organ, bow to this organism, organism. Like in this case with lust, you can just simply thank you very much for trying to connect me. I so appreciate your intention. But you know what? I know a more helpful and supportive path. We don't have to follow these energies. But we can acknowledge they're trying to do something for us. And if you take that little moment of appreciation for for whatever has arisen, um, there begins to be a nice softening of our internal relationship. And it, can, it just supports you in a beautiful way. It enhances a countenance of non-judgment. You're not bad or inferior. You know. It's increasing your capacity to actually have some affection for yourself. In recognizing those energies, and we might call them the natural limbic love that comes up, the love of the organism for itself. It's a primitive love for itself. It's a desire to exist. But it's, in one sense, we could look at it as, it's like this creation loving itself, wanting to take care of itself. And so in that moment of, uh, that short moment of reflection, you're learning how to love yourself a little better. You're starting to heal those feelings of internal separation, those feelings of not good enough and defective, that fragmentation that that we sometimes feel. And in the most pronounced cases, you're beginning to heal those feelings of self-loathing. So in this example of lust, lust is not some horrible, miserable thing that needs to be eradicated and pushed off. Because anytime we take that stance of that a kind of internal fighting stance against ourself, um, we're just doing violence to ourselves, really. And the third reason that these challenging energies are really not such a big problem, and the one. Uh, and in fact, they're an opportunity. Each of the, and Marcia spoke about this last night, each of the jhanic factors, each of, the, each of these elements of what, what makes up a, a, a concentrated mind, a gathered mind, 
is a counterbalance or antidote to each of these, each of these energies. This samadhi that you're beginning to develop and understand a little bit is really a soothing balm for this wanting, aversion, sleepiness, restlessness, doubt. So let's take a look at how this works in a little bit, a little bit of detail. Uh, Marcia mentioned last night uh, Vitaka and Fachara, the aiming and sustaining of the mind, and that's what you've been trying to do. You're trying to aim it at the spot and sustain it as best you're able for as long as you're able. As a general rule, these hindrance energies only arise when there is a gap. You know, so you you place your place your attention on the anapana spot. And you're there for a little while, and then there's kind of, your attention kind of wanders. And then up in that space, anything could come up. Restlessness, sleepiness, doubt, wanting, aversion. You know, so there's, when there creates a gap, these energies get, you know, get some, get some play. And when you're connected to the breath in a relaxed way, well, they, they just don't get a chance. So vitaka, that, that aiming and connecting, um, that counteracts sleepiness and dullness. That moment when you find the anapana spot, you make that first connection. So the sleepiness and dullness, if we look at it in terms of well, what's it trying to do for us, the limbic love that it's bringing to us when we're kind of nodding off, um, it's it can be the organism kind of shutting itself down, possibly trying to protect itself from having to feel anything that's unpleasant or having to face a challenge that could be difficult. You know, it, this isn't wise, but this is what the organism's trying to do for us. And it's logical that, that Vitaka, that aiming, and that connection, it helps cut through that protective lethargy that we sometimes feel. When you make a vivid connection to your meditation object, there's no room for dullness, boredom, sluggishness, avoidance, sleepiness to take hold. There's just no room. Mataka, it's got a wakeful quality. When we first make that, first make that connection, so the, the clarity of knowing the object can break through that sloth and torpor. I mean, there's different, different types of sleepiness. On the basic level, most Westerners are underslept. That's a fact. On the next level, we all have different biorhythms. Some of us are morning people, some of us are you know, we kind of have the energy is really cooking later in the day. It's just the way it is. But another more interesting type of sleepiness is sinking mind. That's when there's pretty good samadhi. Uh, The mind is pretty steady, but the energy just isn't up to speed to meet it. It, It's kind of like there's brownout conditions. There's power, but it's like, down a notch or two. It's like the lights have dimmed. Sometimes um, in the beginning of a retreat or after lunch, sitting up here, you look out, it's like the sea of bobbleheads. You know, it's like. <laughs> but maybe you've noticed that teachers are not immune to this either. You know, so. And sometimes a good kind of whiplash jerk will kind of bring the energy back. Uh, but sometimes not. You just go back to fog land, you know. You know, that's because the vitaka, that connection, isn't juiced enough, doesn't have enough energy. The balance is somehow off a little bit between the calming mind, the calming aspects of the mind, and the energetic factors. Now, chronic sleepiness in, in meditation could also be the result of simply a life that's out of balance. 
or maybe resistance to some difficult emotion that we, that we don't want to feel. Feelings of loneliness, sorrow, emptiness, loss of control, whatever it might be. Sometimes the system just dims itself down, don't want to go there, you know. Another way to look at sloth and torpor, sleepiness, is that it's just not being alive to what's happening right now. So it shows up as sleepiness. In life, out in in real life, whatever that is, it, it can be waiting, kind of waiting for life to begin, waiting for the next jolt of stimulus. Some of you are experienced junkies. And it takes time as you meditate to get acclimated to the more subtleties of experience and not just doze off in between intense stimulation events. And our culture is so, I mean, most of the movies and everything that are produced are explosions and car chases and, you know, just hammering the senses. You know, so this, this takes a little getting used to, kind of resting in the subtleties of this. So being aware of the intensity of that, of the, the energy involved in the vitaka, you know. Am I connecting to the object with some interest? Is there some juice here? Am I curious about this? So when vitaka has some energy to it, it's really, um, it, it, you could say it brings on beginner's mind. The experience is fresh again. Now, vichara, the energy that sustains the connection, that has the capacity to dispel doubt. And, and doubt, if we look at its kind of limbic love, is trying to protect us from making some kind of misstep that could be unpleasant in some way. It's better just to paralyze the whole system with doubt than make a a mistake that might be hurtful. And vichara, the sustaining of attention, is an antidote to this. Because by sustaining the awareness uh, long enough and becoming intimate with our object, there's no opportunity during that intimate connection for confusion or uncertainty to take root or to to have a space at the table. But you need to be warned because doubt is the most insidious of all of the hindrances. It's sneaky. It's so logical. You know, because if you think about it, wise discernment, wise discernment has some doubt in it. There's lots of times where we have to like, oh, I'm not going to listen... I'm doubting what that politician says. You know, that's a possibility. They might not be telling the truth. So it's an aspect of wisdom. So it sneaks in there on us. But but in practice, if we're running off these long internal thought streams, internal dialogues uh, of doubt, it just paralyzes the practice. I mean, if, if we're sitting with a barrage of thoughts that are like, oh, gee, am I wasting my time or not? I think I'm wasting my time. I could be home cleaning the bathroom. I shouldn't be here doing this. Or these teachings are kind of crazy. You know, they're kind of bogus, I think. Or, or these teachers up there seem kind of clueless. You know, they're not enlightened. And, and in the end, all this stuff, it, sure, it may work for some people. I've read about it, but not me. You know, it's just one thing. The plug gets pulled. The energy just right down the drain. Short little story. A nun came to the abbess, complaining that doubt was her primary challenge on the Buddhist path. She had doubt about the path itself, about the teachings, and about the teachers, and most importantly, about her own ability to succeed in the Buddhist practice. Your problem, said the abbess, is that you don't doubt enough. If you are going to the trouble of doubting, then continue your doubting, but do it more thoroughly. Please, also doubt your doubt. 
doubt your doubt. Why do you want to believe this stuff? You know? It's just words coming through. You don't have to believe it. You can doubt all the way and just doubt it. And the third of the factors, there's Vitaka Vichara, third of the factors in a gathering concentrated mind is piti. And it arises naturally out of a mind that stays connected. Rapture, it's joy. Maybe a few of you have had just a sniff of piti, that experience. When you've been with the object for a few breaths, you know, there, there is this arising of joy. It, ina- it just naturally appears when you've gotten a little bit concentrated. And as you can imagine, this, this joy is an antidote for aversion. The, the not wanting. I mean, aversion, not wanting. Those energies are desiring, uh, in, in their slightly misguided but well-meaning way, uh, they're, they're designed to protect us from something. They're trying to protect us. Something might be unpleasant or uncomfortable. Want it away from us. But when you're feeling the joy of PT, when that comes on, you have a little gathered attention and that starts to activate. It's difficult to have any ill will or any of the forms of aversion fear, guilt, boredom, whatever they are. They're all gone. Uh, you're tranquilized in a way, temporarily. And sukha, closely related to piti, is the fourth of the jhanic factors or uh, factors of concentration. It's happiness, pleasure, sweetness. I named my dog sukha. Just the sweetest animal. Um, Contentment of heart and mind. Sukha has this soothing pleasantness. And it'll often make you smile. Uh, A lot of the uh, iconography of the Buddha shows the Buddha smiling. You know? And this morning in the instructions, I invited you to try it out. to, To try a little smile as you sit down to meditate. Because it, it, it kind of points us in that direction of happiness. And it reminds me of, uh, I studied with this monk. His name was uh, Bonte, his name is Bonte Vilma Rimsey. Big, tall, hulking guy. And in his robe, and you know, everybody's kind of looking serious here, walking around and doing our practice. And he'd sneak up on you. And he'd pull out a mirror and just hold it in your face. And if you, you know, and he'd want you to smile. You know, on the bottom of the mirror was written, like in some marker, smile. You know, it's not so serious. You know? So you can actually smile a little bit when you're doing this. Then at the end of the course, it was a very small course, he gave everybody a mirror, a little tiny, you know, dime store mirror. It was very cute. So sukha is the antidote for restlessness. Restlessness being that challenging energy that the limbic system sends to us to make sure we're vigilant to any threats. Restlessness and worry is a misguided but loving attempt of the organism to line up, to line up all the external conditions so we are safe, comfortable, happy, and live forever. You know, it's like planning, 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 line this all, I get this all set up, all the conditions in the world. Yeah, well, good luck, you know. That's, it's well-meaning, but it's, it, we all know that's kind of silly. It's just not going to happen. So when sukha is, is kind of inactivated, your thinking settles down a little bit. You'll notice there's no obsessive planning in the mind. Um, the, the mind is not agitated anymore. There's a feeling of kind of a general okayness. 
your mind is content, starting to feel what, what contentment feels like. And you're just delighting in the present experience. Could be anything. Just delighting in everything. Now, as the heart and mind becomes more settled, refined and peaceful, you experience what's called ikagata, the unification of the mind. And that has the capacity to transform the energy of desire. I mean, when desire is up and active, you want more. And you're not satisfied. And when you find something you like, you grip on. And when that fades, you scramble for more. The wanting energies are always moving outside ourselves, grabbing, moving, you know, chasing one thing or another. Sense desire is the I want it mind. Again, on the limbic loving side, it's just trying to get things for us, for our safety, our happiness, you know. Now, with this focused intensity, when, it, when, when all these factors of mind come together, you then experience you don't want anything, not a thing. Nothing is lacking. There's no deficiency. Desire is absent. At least for that time, desire is kaput. At this point, the mind is strongly unified. You're at one with your experience. All those hindrance energies are relaxed. They're basically asleep for the time being. And so, uh, as as Marcia said last night, ikagata is synonymous with equanimity. And you could say you move from the sweetness of sukha to the coolness of ikagata, the unified mind. It's balanced, content coolness. Now these energies, these hindrance energies, when I first started practicing, I had the ideas, I had the idea that when these energies came came up, that they they were somehow outside of my meditation. I really had to like do away with them. At some point I had the breakthrough, and I look back, it seems pretty significant now that um, I came to see these energies as really part of the practice that the arising of the challenging energies wasn't some anomaly particular, particular to my inferior mind. That these mind states are really an important part of the path, learning to be with them. They arise naturally in everyone. They're not something to be shoved aside, suppressed, or repressed. And now, later in my practice, I get to see more and more that they're an expression of this kind of primitive love, this limbic love. The organism is simply trying to get all the goodies and live forever. That's all it wants. Misguided, of course. And it'll lead you into deep dukkha, deep suffering, if you follow these energies and allow them to run your lives. But recognizing that there is, you know, a little loving at at the core of it. Another little monastery story. One of the monastery's old monks had become a hermit, living two and a half a two and a half day hike over difficult mountain paths. Many visitors made the trek to receive advice and teachings from the old wise monk. He was reputed to know just what each visitor needed. But prior to giving instruction, the hermit asked that the visitor promise not to tell anyone what advice or instruction he or she received. After the promise was made, the hermit would simply say, what are you not willing to pay attention to? What are you not willing to pay attention to? This was the only thing he would ever say to those seeking his help. And many visitors were perplexed by this question, but by the time they walked the two-and-a-half-mile trek out of the mountains, they invariably would praise the hermit for giving them just the instruction they needed to hear. What are you not willing to pay attention to?
Now, when we accent concentration in practice, a mature practitioner has an interesting choice to make. And it really calls forth your, calls forth your artistry as a practitioner. And this came up, we had this discussion in several of the groups today. What do you do when one of these energies is up? Wanting, doubt, whatever it might be. And, and the general instruction is to just leave it and go back to your anapana spot. Okay. But what happens when one of these energies is really powerful? Now, in that case, it requires your full undivided attention. Your concentration is shot at that time anyway. But sometimes these energies will notice, well, they're there. might be a little sadness or a little irritation, etc. Or there may be a sensation in the body that's, you know, it's, it's mild. But they're not rooted in any deep way. And in that case, we can just allow it to be in the background. And if we're endeavoring to cultivate concentration, we can just stay with our object. Now, knowing the difference is the key. And it takes a little practice. For some of you, uh, there might be a temptation to try to push everything away and keep it off on the side and just grab on and nail that attention to that anapana spot. Even, even, though you know it, even though you know better, it's really not the way to practice. I mean, everybody goes through this. Even the most seasoned meditators uh, have to work through some of the striving for these states. You know, you meditate long enough, these, these, when the mind collects itself, you have these very blissful, love, loving, love, you know, just beautiful states. And so there's that tendency as your spiritual maturation is happening is you want to get those back. How do I do that? But when we strive, that kind of jostles the mind. That's just another wanting. And then concentration breaks down. So if you're a striver, don't worry about it. You'll be taught the lesson over and over again. The more you try to get it, the more your mind will kind of crumble on you. And and I I like to tell the story of when I first, uh, the first retreat I did with Pawak Sayadaw. The three of us have studied with him, and he's one of our dearest teachers, just an extraordinary human being and teacher. Uh, And it's a very hard practice. All the sittings are an hour and a half. You know, it's, it's pretty intense. So the first time I sat with him, I wasn't, and I'd been doing uh, different types of concentration practices. And, and I came there, um, put aside this time, and I had this really strong intention. Well, I'm going to really develop these, these jhanas. But what was hiding under that really strong intention, which is wholesome, is this striving. So about the fourth week in, you know, of practicing really diligently every, every, you know, cutting down my sleep and just practice, practice. The only way I can explain it is that my mind broke. It just broke. I was pushing so hard to, to kind of learn and get these states and trying to suppress everything but my object of concentration that the mind just kind of crashed kind of blank screen almost. I, I couldn't hold two consecutive thoughts together. It was like all the oxygen got sucked out of my brain. I couldn't meditate. I couldn't even get it together to go for a walk or go to Powhawk and say, oh, what do I do? So I was just lying there in bed. And I had this thought. The only thought that came to me really was, if this doesn't clear, I'm in really deep sneakers. <laughs> and so I fell asleep. It was a long sleep. I never sleep that long. It's probably like nine hours or something. And I woke up and I felt kind of refreshed. But I, boy, did I learn an important, very important lesson um, about samadhi practice. The most important lesson there is. That relaxation is really, really critical. And that any attempt to suppress strong hindrances 
they're going to come back to bite you. And they can bite you pretty hard. So we can't bypass these hindrance energies when they're of some significance. If they're of significance, they need to be seen and felt through. Any harshness or any repression of them really is only violent, doing violence to yourself. So the, the gateway to deep samadhi is really through, of course, patience, but gentleness, non-judgment, and re- relaxation over and over again. So when you make the determination that a particular hindrance energy is above this threshold, the threshold where, gee, I need to pay attention to that, that it's not some rootless, wispy thought or emotion that comes and goes. The first and foremost skillful means that the Buddha taught with working with these energies really was to patiently just allow the experience. Now there's a caveat to that. If you've had a trauma history um, and you're feeling that you're starting to get triggered or you're feeling that you're trying to kind of, you're facing this challenging emotion and you're feeling like you're white knuckling to try to get through it and you're beginning to feel, well, this, this is terror and you're the judge, then it's time to just break it off. Take a walk, get some tea, take a hot shower, you know, do something else find a trashy novel, whatever it is, you want to break it off. We don't do terror and we don't do white knuckling. It's not part of the practice. Remember the story of the Buddha on his night of enlightenment? It's, a, it's this famous archetypical encounter with, the, uh, with Mara that took place under the Bodhi tree in Bodhgaya. I want to read to you, this, this is a piece from Joseph Campbell's book, Hero with a Thousand Faces. And it kind of gets at this kind of turning toward our experience with, with whatever equanimity we can muster. The Bodhisattva placed himself with firm resolve beneath the Bodhi tree on the immovable spot and straightway was approached by Mara, the god of craving, hatred, and death. Not the kind of god we want to have around a lot. The dangerous god appeared mounted on an elephant carrying weapons in his 1,000 hands. He was surrounded by his army, which extended 12 leagues before him, 12 leagues to the right, 12 leagues to the left, and to the rear as far as the confines of the world. And for nine leagues high, the protective deities of the universe took flight. But the future Buddha remained unmoved. Whirlwinds, rocks, thunder, flames, smoking weapons with keen edges. I like that one. Smoking weapons with keen edges, burning coals, hot ashes, boiling mud, blistering sands, and fourfold darkness, the antagonist Mara hurled against the Bodhisattva. But the missiles all were transformed into celestial flowers and ointments by the power of Gautama's ten perfections, wisdom, kindness, patience, perseverance, and so forth. Mara then deployed the temptations of desire and lust by surrounding the Bodhisattva with voluptuous attendance. And again, the mind of the great Bodhisattva was not distracted. The powerful God finally changed, the powerful God finally challenged the future Buddha's right to be sitting on the immovable spot flinging his razor-sharp discus and imploring his army to let fly at him with mountain crags. But the future Buddha only moved his hand to touch the ground with his fingertips and thus bid the goddess earth to bear witness to his right to be sitting where he was. She did so with 100,000 roars. And with that, the elephant of Mara fell upon his knees, paying respect to the future Buddha. Mara's army immediately dispersed and the gods of all worlds took notice. So our encounters with these challenging energies are generally not so dramatic. Well, sometimes they might be. 
but given that most of us here don't have quite the steadiness uh, in the mind of Gautama, uh, these energies uh, are no less difficult for us. But in, in, this, in this myth, uh, the important aspect of our practice is again revealed. Yeah, did you notice the Buddha didn't do anything overtly to combat Mara? You know, it's said that he had developed all kinds of powers, but he didn't, he didn't do anything. He didn't throw anything back at Mara. He took refuge in his powerful equanimity, his steady, patient mind. It was a very intense situation. You know, just like when you're visited by these energies, strong emotions, difficult, strong sensations in the body. The Buddha was perfectly aware of what was happening around him. It's not like he wasn't aware of all this stuff coming at him and the voluptuous attendance, the whole tempting and fear that Mara was, was, was bringing forth. He wasn't resisting anything, but nothing stuck. It's really one of the original Teflon men. So experiencing deeply like this, but not getting lost, tumbled into it, identified, that's the razor's edge of this practice. That's what you're cultivating. To feel it all directly, but not thrashing around and pushing and shoving at every unpleasant experience or trying to grasp and hold still to every pleasant one that comes your way. I think I have time for this story. Uh, This story, again, takes place in uh, India. It's told of a golf course in India. Apparently, once the English had colonized the country and established their businesses, colonized, that's a nice euphemistic word for ruthless exploitation of an entire culture for the gain of the colonizers. So anyway, after they colonized... Uh, India, they were looking for um, some recreation and decided to build a golf course in Calcutta. Um, But it presented a unique obstacle that they had because monkeys would drop out of the trees and scurry across the course and they were very interested in these little balls (laughs) and they would throw them around and, and drive these people bonkers. So at first they tried to control the monkeys. Their first strategy, well, we'll build fences. Makes sense around the fairway, you know, the whole place, around the greens and fairways. Well, it initially held some promise, but was abandoned when the golfers discovered that a fence is no challenge to an ambitious monkey. Well, duh. Next, the golfers tried to lure the monkeys away from the course, but the monkeys found nothing as amusing as watching humans go wild whenever their little white balls were disturbed. (laughs) In desperation, the British began trapping the monkeys, But for every monkey they carted off, another would appear. Finally, the golfers at the club club, gave in to reality and developed a rather novel ground rule. Play the ball where the monkey drops it. (laughs) Can we play the ball where the monkey drops it? That's the question. In concentration practice, Sometimes the monkey drops the ball on a really difficult emotion, a strong, painful physical sensation, a repeating thought loop, severe restlessness, chronic sleepiness, or paralytic doubt, all of which we don't know what it's related to. But that's where the ball gets dropped for a period of time. They're all impermanent. Some of this stuff that comes up might be related to attachment disorders or early trauma, or maybe if you're open to the possibility of past lives, it could go way, way back. Or maybe some of this stuff is actually in our DNA. We're still learning about that. But whatever the cause, when one or more of these energies is powerful, they really do require our attention, not repression. A soft, gentle, understanding, acceptance.
And even though you might want to push them aside, ultimately, if they're of significance, they'll come back. So we're, in a way, we're asked to attend and befriend whatever arises from the Tao Te Ching. Nothing in the world is as soft and yielding as water. Yet in dissolving the hard and inflexible, nothing can surpass it. The soft overcomes the hard. The gentle overcomes the rigid. Everyone knows this is true. But few can put it into practice. I mean, cultivating greater samadhi is like this. It's like water dripping on the rock. Soft but steady. Drip, drip, drip. There's an acronym um, that some of you have probably heard uh, that's helpful in working with these kind of energies when they're up. The acronym is RAIN, R-A-I-N. R being the recognition. First, we have to recognize what's, what's happening. Otherwise, we're kind of identified and lost in it. You know, so just simply noticing, oh, this is fear. You know, coupled with that soft kind of understanding, oh, this fear is trying to protect me. And so then the A, the accepting and allowing that fear, that's just what's happening. That's, that's the weather. We allow it to play out. And the I, kind of becoming intimate with it, investigating it. That's the eye. It's not, the eye is not passive. We're really kind of connecting with this phenomena as it's there. We're turning toward it. We're meeting it. And it, and it sometimes takes courage. But all these phenomena, we're watching them kind of flower, get larger, intensify, whatever they do, and then they dissolve away. We're learning about impermanence firsthand. And finally, the end of the R-A-I-N, is non-identification, non-ownership. It's applying that wisdom of understanding of the impermanence of all phenomena, the selfless nature of everything. And it's an aspect of being human that we experience fear in these other emotions. But ultimately, they're just passing. A couple of a couple of changes in perspective have always been helpful to me in, in dealing with these energies. One is the habit of withdrawing, the, withdrawing my energy from the object of my, my lust or my aversion, whatever it may be. Using, using an example, I used to eat it late at night, and we all know that's unhealthy, right? You know? And so I just find myself at the refrigerator. The door's open. But if I could be mindful, there's an opportunity. Okay, what's really going on? I'm not really so hungry. What's really going on inside me? You know? Uh, and so if I could pause and reflect, well, what's really going on inside me? Well, maybe there's a little bit of anxiety. And I'm kind of reaching for something, for some comfort. Well, can I be with that anxiety and just feel it through like any other phenomena? Let it arise and pass away. You know? Um, and maybe there's some loneliness. Well, can I be with that? You know, yeah, I can be with these things. I've done it before. I don't necessarily have to grab something out of there and scarf it down where I know it's not helpful. And I'm just kind of trying to avoid these feelings. So that's just withdrawing from the object. The object might have been the yogurt or whatever I was going for. And just bring it back home. In the same way, if you have an arising of lust for another person, you know. Well, see what it's like to just bring, bring that home. So, ooh, this is unadulterated lust. Wow, look at, the, look at that. It's not so peaceful. Agitation. You watch it do its thing, and eventually it runs out of gas.
Another strategy I like, and I'm a little partial to, is <clears throat> utilizing the sensibility of spaciousness. You know, so I'm at the refrigerator, and, and one skillful means is you, you're paying attention to these internal emotions, et cetera, you're being with them, et cetera. And another is, in addition, you can kind of see those emotions in a more spacious context. You can also hear the hum of the refrigerator. You can hear sounds in the house and outside. You can kind of feel the space in the room. You know, it's like creating a broader camera angle. You can, you can then kind of feel the, the infinite space even, if you would. So in the midst of it, there's this desire going on, but there's all this life and space, universes being born and dissolving. And then there's this desire happening. It just gives it perspective. It's maybe sometimes in feeling the spaciousness, the kind of awareness that supports all of this, that it, it, it makes it more workable. Ajahn Chah, the legendary Thai master, he, he muses on the nature of suffering in this way. He says, there are two kinds of suffering, the suffering that leads to more suffering and the suffering that leads to the end of suffering. The first is the pain of grasping after fleeting, pre- fleeting pleasures and aversion for the unpleasant. This is the continual struggle of most people day after day. The second is the suffering which comes when you allow yourself to feel fully the constant change of experience, pleasure, pain, joy, and anger, without fear or withdrawal. The suffering of our experience leads to inner fearlessness and peace. So when you, when you undertake the practice to enhance your samadhi, you're cultivating your relationship with all these various challenging energies, really, of life. You come to know when to spend time with them, and, when, and you come to know when to just gently leave them. And you dance as best you're able with the challenges they bring. You know, and as you spend time with them and you trace back from one possible challenging emotion to another, and ultimately it can have the capacity to open into that radiant natural mind. If you're patient and spend enough time, And this practice is really, it's a a variety of ways of taking you back to really who you really are. That loving, bright, kind of wise, compassionate being. These practices are kind of a way of helping us navigate home. I'll just close with some words from Walt Whitman from uh, out of Song of the Open Road. Pausing, searching, receiving, contemplating, gently, but with undeniable will, divesting myself of the holds that would hold me. I inhale great drafts of space. The east and the west are mine. The north and the south are mine. I am larger, better than I thought. I did not know I held so much goodness. So let's just sit for just a moment or two.
I am larger, better than I thought. I did not know I held so much goodness. Thank you for your attention. There's about a half hour for walking meditation. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.